A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. If you think that the female spy is a 20th century phenomenon, be it Matahari, Mrs. Zigzag, or Eve Palastri, think again. Accounts of numerous 17th century she intelligences have lain undiscovered in archives for centuries, and these remarkable women were much more than the honey trap accomplices of a Stuart era George Smiley. Take Susan Hyde, for example, sister of the Earl of Clarendon, who met a sorry end in Lambeth Prison. A very melancholy account of a cruel usage of one Mrs. Hyde, a relation of the Chancellor's who had been seized upon suspicion of illicit correspondence, and though nothing was found upon her, yet they used her so ill, and terrified her so much that she lost her senses and expired in a few days in that condition. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm joined by Dr. Nadine Ackman, author of Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain, to talk about her fascinating quest to unearth the plots and conspiracies involving women spies that have been forgotten by history. Dr. Nadine Ackerman is a reader in early modern English literature at Leiden University. She's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and she's currently putting the finishing touches to her biography of Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Bohemia, which is due out soon with OUP. And she's also already published Elizabeth Stuart's Complete Correspondence, which is a monumental work of scholarship. And in reading and transcribing and deciphering hundreds, maybe thousands of these letters, Nadine, historian-turned-spy mistress, discovered a female spy, and that led her deep into the shadowy world of espionage. And so her last book, the critically acclaimed Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain, argues that women were at the very heart of British international relations in the mid-17th century. And on Twitter, Nadine's handle is at Miss Walsingham. And we'll see that this is a very appropriate moniker. So, Nadine, what period are we talking about? And how did you find these extraordinary female spies? Yes, the period we're talking about is basically the civil wars and its aftermath. So we're talking about basically around 1638 when we have the Bishop Wars starting in Scotland and that turns into the civil wars that then hit England in 1642 all the way until the Restoration when we get Charles II on the throne in 1660. 
an extraordinary time because it's unlike any other time in history when women suddenly take the initiatives and start becoming active as spies in the dangerous trade of espionage. Why in this period do they do that? What is it about this period that allows them to take that political role? Yeah, in the early modern period, women couldn't have a kind of governmental office. So normally they wouldn't be in the secret service because that was kind of an official function women could not hold. But here, when during civil wars, when we have men on the battlefield, imprisoned, or they basically fled to the continent, women had a lot more mobility. They weren't really suspected, often not searched, and they really thought this is an opportunity actually for us to get involved and to save our men. Of course, it's always the impact of war is that the men are away and the women can play. So how many female spies did you find? And how did you find these stories? I found about 60 of them, and they weren't all as active, but some just queried messages from A to B, but others were really spies and bribery, eavesdropping. So I found 60 of them in the archives, and it all started quite accidentally when I was researching something else. I was looking for Elizabeth Stewart, Queen of Bohemia, reading hundreds of letters, and I stumbled upon a major woman spy. And because she was such a big player, I was wondering how on earth could I have missed her? And if we've missed her, how many other women are lurking in the archives waiting to be found? So it all started with just serendipity, really. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it all comes down to the sources that you're using and how these women can be hidden. The thing, I suppose, about spies is that they are trying to not be seen. So how do you go about researching the invisible? Yes, that's one of the key characteristics is they have to be invisible. One of the advantages women had in that period is that a lot of people thought of women as being invisible creatures. So in that way, they were already more successful than their male colleagues. They weren't suspected that men really thought about women as being inferior, physically not capable of having any political thoughts. But their letters also escaped interception often because when someone from the other side who was trying to intercept messages saw a woman's hand, he thought, well, this is clearly written by a woman and therefore she will talk about domestic tittle-tattle gossip. There's no need for me to look at a letter. And that letter escaped interception. What was distinctive about a woman's handwriting? Well, men do this too, but men often have a more secretary hand, certainly in this period, whereas a woman's hand, you can see by italics, it has a more curly shape and therefore a feminine shape. And of course, some male spies caught on to this and tried to forge a woman's hand as well. But usually you can sort of see a woman's hand in the archives and that's sometimes how I find women as well, not even looking at their signatures, but just at the handwriting. There seems to be something that is gendered about it. But of course, women could do the secretary hand, but often we find them writing in italics. And male interceptors 
who were opening hundreds of letters and could only work for a few hours before the post had to continue, had to make a first selection. So when they saw a woman's hand, they thought, this is not worth opening, this is not worth bothering with, I will leave it untouched and move on to something that looks more secretive. Yes, that is fascinating that immediately they're above suspicion because they're women. And I suppose there's a small advantage for you there in that the italic hand that women are writing in, you know, it's the forerunner of modern handwriting, is easier to read than secretary hand. But, I mean, I think that's probably all that's easy about your job in terms of reading these letters, (laughs) because you're dealing with all sorts of hidden messages and ciphers. I mean, literally deciphering, (laughs) understanding cipher alphabets and codes. Tell me a bit about how you did that. Yes, of course, they just didn't write a normal script, but indeed also use cipher codes. And usually that's a substitution alphabet where you have letters, A being 23, B being 33, C being 43. Usually they're quite rudimentary, which is, of course, great for us historians because that allows us even have no knowledge of mathematics. But with these kind of rudimentary systems, we can start puzzling. And of course, the thing with ciphers is that it stares back at you from the very page. So if you are in the archive and you see all these kind of numbers amongst normal writing, you could sort of think this person probably has something to hide, which is great if you're looking for spies and people trying to be deceptive. You can work with cipher codes and usually I try to look where someone uses plain text as well as cipher and makes the mistake of, for instance, only putting the subject of a sentence into cipher code. And if you then know enough about the context, you can think, oh, this must be the Duke of Buckingham. And if you're lucky and the name is really long, you suddenly have all those letters of the alphabet in place and you can start filling it in as if it's a kind of Sudoku puzzle. It's quite fun. And as long as you have enough letters, you can actually do it. But you do point out a really important aspect of this, which is that if you do fill a letter with numbers, if these people reading letters are taking the time to look at a woman's handwriting, if they happen to open that one, they're going to see immediately that it does look suspicious. Absolutely. Writing in cipher was not only something that diplomat used and that spies used very early in the period in the 16th century and early in the 17th century, a lot of aristocrats used it just for gossip or to play games. It was a kind of elite way of writing. But in the Civil War, Parliament soon discovered people are actually using this to trying to betray Parliament. So it became forbidden. And that has two consequences. One, if a person is continued to write in cipher code, because it is forbidden and you could be punishable as a spy, a person was really taking a risk, so probably really writing something secretive. Another consequence of it becoming forbidden in 1643-1644 is that people resort to different ways of hiding messages, such as, for instance, talking in riddles or using invisible inks. And talking in riddles you can't immediately spot. For instance, you would have a shopping list in your letter saying, I want to order 20 gloves from Paris. Whereas in fact, you were trying to say, I think we'll have an army of 200 soldiers coming in from Newcastle. 
So this kind of shopping list could be a whole different kind of code, which an interceptor wouldn't eat immediately spot. And for us historians, it's also incredibly difficult. How do you go about deciphering something like that? How can you make head or tail of that? If you know the person who's writing, and she talks about her brother, and she has neither a brother-in-law nor a real brother. She could still be talking about a brother in arms, or there's something really funny going on. And I was looking at a bunch of letters where everyone had some kind of sickness all at the same time. And they were saying, it's now time to use the powder to rub between the ribs. And they were using invisible inks between the lines of the normal plain text writing. So that were the ribs they were talking about. You become, of course, paranoid when you're working on spies for about five years. So there's also danger that you do actually see plots everywhere and that a shopping list is just not more than a shopping list. But sometimes there are clues that indicate this is something more. I love that. I mean, I find working in the archives just generally always to be like being a detective, piecing together a story and the thrill of finding the evidence and making sense of it is always great. But what you're doing is taking that to a whole new level. And it suggests that you have to have such intimate knowledge of your correspondence because you need to know when they don't have a brother, when they're somewhere else to where they're purporting to be, why they might not be ordering oranges but actually are talking about troops. Is that the case? Yes, true. I've been sort of fortunate or unfortunate depending on how you look at it because I've been working on Elizabeth Stewart's correspondence for over two decades now. I've seen so many letters and I've seen so many people writing. I have a kind of a good idea about what the rhetoric of a normal letter is and I have also quite a lot of knowledge about a whole group of people who are living in this century and you become a bit of a detective as all historians are. What techniques of secret writing have you found? I've found people writing in invisible inks and I thought that's lemon juice or orange juice, definitely. But these kind of citric fruits are quite exotic still in the period. So they actually would be more likely to use something else. So I have a woman writing with artichoke juice and milk. They use vinegar. Later in the tower, they also use urine. So it's unexpected the things they make potions of. Some of these invisible inks were poisonous, so there's also an ink using silver nitrate. And they warn each other, make sure not to drink this. So they're actually quite sophisticated formulas. And women hide them in these recipes in recipe books. So amongst recipes of cakes, we suddenly have a very complicated invisible ink recipe, which is quite funny because it's also passed on from generation to generation, mothers and daughters using the same recipe book and probably experimenting with these kind of inks. And then, of course, I've come across ciphered writings and letter locking techniques. The way people fold their letters can also be a secret technique. That's fascinating. So we're talking about an age in which envelopes aren't used. So people are folding their letters in order to send them. So what do these letters look like? Describe letter locking for us. It's incredible to even think that 
indeed the modern gummed envelope is a 19th century invention. So before the 19th century, people were using the sheet of paper they were writing on and folded it as such that it becomes its own sending device. And that's what we call letter locking. And the way you can fold it can be really personal. You can fold it in a very simple manner if you don't have any time. But if we were spies, we could agree with each other saying, okay, next week I'm going to send you a diamond-shaped letter. And you will recognize by the diamond-shaped foldings that this is a letter from me. I no longer have to sign it. I no longer have to use a code name. You can just look at the foldings of the paper and you know it's from me. And just imagine if you are an interceptor and having to deal with hundreds of letters, just imagine having hundreds of origami birds on your desk. Can you really refold that origami bird really quickly and fold it in exactly the same manner if someone has studied this beforehand? You will see, well, this is not really the bird I had thought in mind. Someone might have tampered with my letter. So that's how the addressee, on the other hand, could know perhaps someone has tried to unfold this letter or this is really the letter that is coming from Nadine because it's this perfect diamond shape that is still intact. I'm getting more and more in awe of you. Not only are you a mistress of codes and secret writing, but also origami, it turns out. So what sort of shapes might they make with these letters? You're looking for details, little slits, little cuts, For instance, and everyone is doing this, so this is from merchants to monarchs. When you look at the letters, Sir Francis Walsingham was, for instance, he was, of course, a master in everything when it comes to espionage. But he was cutting a corner of the writing sheet and he used that corner as a lock. He folded it through the paper itself and it becomes literally a piece of a puzzle addressee could then look for because paper in this period was handmade so you could not really unless you have a sheet that comes from the same bundle of papers you could not really forge the lining of that paper so the addressee could hold it up to the light and see whether the linings of the papers matched he would make sure that his signature went through that corner so you can have part of the signature still on the writing sheet and that part of the signature had to match with the lock that was then used for that paper. So they had different ways of folding a envelope, a sending device. They use hundreds of different techniques. And this is a new field of study invented by Janet Ambrosio from MIT with her Unlocking History group. And we're still figuring out, are there also ways that are women using certain folding techniques? Do different kind of professions, even though that's an anachronistic word, but do merchants use different foldings techniques than, for instance, printers? Do we actually need to identify the people? Can we just look at the foldings, the materiality of the paper to see what kind of persons this was? So it's a very exciting way to study a letter as well. And it draws on a variety of approaches to history in that you're thinking about the political context, and we'll talk a bit about that hopefully in a second, but you're also thinking about the stuff of the past, these pieces of paper 
as something physical, a material culture, something that existed, as well as thinking about the text on it and thinking about these codes and systems that they're using. As you say, you, you may not have much mathematics, but it is mathematics that's going into it. So it's a multifaceted approach in order to try and get at it, which explains, I suppose, why these stories have been hidden from view for historians, because you need to employ all these resources in order to engage with this history. Oh, yes, you need to be really cunning in sort of understanding all of that. There's also something else going on. Of course, I've been writing on women spies, And even in the period, women's letters were seen as less important. But I think in the 18th and 19th centuries, when the first editions were made, women were also still seen as less important than men. So often printed editions do not include women's letters. Often in archives, they remained uncatalogued. It's only until, I guess, since the 1980s, which is relatively speaking not that long ago, that we sort of realized actually women were also very important in this period. But that means that their letters are still uncatalogued or that there are no proper editions yet of all their letters. Even if we think about the queens of England, we don't have a full edition of Anne of Denmark's letters or Henrietta Maria's letters. That still needs to be done. I've spent now almost 20 years working on Elizabeth Stewart's letters, the sister of Charles I. So someone also needs to have time and funding to do this, but that still needs to be done. If the letters of queens are not even available, what about all these other women from lower strata of society? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So much of the history we see of the 16th and 17th centuries through the eyes of the Victorians, because it's they who are determining what the archives look like. And we have to go and get past that. Yes, so in a way we need to start anew, and especially with the calendar of state papers, they may not have put them in at all, or they may have given a kind of censored view, because the calendars are just summaries. If you want a full transcription of a letter, if you really want to understand it, you always have to go back to the originals. This is a side point, but I'm always struck by how the calendars, which for those of you who don't know are about being put in the chronological order in which those archiving them thought those letters had been sent, sometimes accurately and sometimes not. But they also, of course, are turning them into the third person. And that loses so much of the vitality when you get in your hands a manuscript letter written in the first person that that person has touched, that that person has written and they're writing in their own voice. It makes such a difference, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And also just see their hand, for instance, trembling. You can see so much about what the handwriting looks like, about the state of that person at that moment. Was it a kind of blotchy letter? Is the ink all over the place or was this written neatly? It tells us so much. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. 
This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So, back to women as spies. Should we call them spies, by the way? Is that the right word to use for the 17th century? No, not really. I think it's a word that makes it more understandable what we're dealing with, but the proper word is intelligencer. And it's basically people trading in secretive stuff in all kinds of ways. Spy is a word that they use in a period, but rarely. So they talk about intelligencers. And do we find female intelligences on both sides during the Civil War, the Royalists and the Parliamentarians? Absolutely, but we find more Royalist women than Parliamentarians, and there's a good reason for that. Royalist women were on the losing side, mostly, so for them there was a bigger incentive to start working in the trade of espionage. But also they came from these kind of elite aristocratic circles. So they already had more connections with generals, with politicians. For them, they could really immediately use their network. They weren't looking for financial reward necessarily. They were kind of politically motivated and relied upon promises that after the restoration they would get an office or their husbands would get an office, they would be rewarded again. And they stood on the same level as the spy master. They came from the same kind of class. Whereas women being thought of as not really credible in this period, not really have an authority, Parliament on the winning side was very reluctant to work with these women and you see women from the lower classes working for Parliament often pretending to be ladies in the first instance to give themselves more credibility but they were kind of really wary of using them thinking well if they turn out to be unreliable and women are unreliable just to begin with this could rub off on me so I want to stay away from them so you see a very different attitude towards using women. So let's tell the stories of some of these women let's talk about agent 409 Horwood Jane Horwood whom you call one of the most skillful of the she intelligences what's her story and why do you think so much of her? Yeah, she is incredible. So she is a daughter of a gentleman of Charles's bedchamber. And she doesn't only become a smuggler, she smuggles gold out of Oxford or into Oxford in great quantities in soap barrels. But later, she designs several escape plans when Charles the King is imprisoned in Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight that on paper could possibly have worked. So she's very inventive. She writes in cipher code very long letters and she becomes his mistress. Now, whether that is by choice or whether she has put herself in a very dangerous situation anyway 
and she has really already crossed that boundary of entering into a male world, a political world, and she had no choice is, I think, something we must consider as well. But she becomes the mistress of Charles I. And she is married to an abusive husband and still manages to survive. And she is very, very resourceful. Did many female intelligences exploit their sexual attractiveness? Thinking of that story, were they honey traps? I found very few instances of honey trapping where they used that kind of sexual allure to trap men. But of course, sexuality is always part of it. And you see these really kind of attractive women. Lady Carlisle is another one of these very beautiful women, Lady Daubigny, who must have used their sexual attractiveness. I found very little evidence of that, but you could sort of imagine no general would admit to being honey trapped by a woman. So there would be very little evidence of that if that actually happened. But I think the femme fatale is something that happens much more in later periods. It's also a stereotype. In a way, these women operated in the same ways as men would in the period, using cipher code, using invisible ink, eavesdropping, bribery. It was a male world and the actors as men. But perhaps, who knows, their sexual attractiveness might have also been an advantage. I love the story you tell of Susan Hyde, which is a wonderful example of how female intelligences have hidden from historians in plain sight. Could you tell us her story? Yes, Susan Hyde is probably my favourite of all she intelligences. And women seem to escape punishment in this period because the interrogators really conclude, well, she could probably not have done it because she was just a woman. Or women are innately disorderly, so we can't really blame them. Or the men are actually legally responsible for the women, so it's not the woman's fault at all. But Susan Hyde dies in Lambeth prison, which in this period is an all-male prison. So it's also astonishing that she ended up there in the first place. And I was looking at a kind of interrogation report of an apothecary, Anthony Hinton, in the Bodleian. And he says, I've been in Lambeth prison for two weeks now. I can no longer stand it. I'm ready to confess all. And he gives all the code names of his male spy colleagues. But also amongst these code names, there are about five code names referring to a woman, to Susan Hyde. And at this point, I have no idea who she is, but I have these five code names, which I can then use to look for her. So she is Mrs. Simberb, Mrs. Simbab, the woman who lives under the sign of the raven, all these kind of wonderful descriptions of her. Also very extraordinary names like Helen, I believe. And I look for her in the archive and find out that Susan Hyde is in direct correspondence with the king. She is trying to organize royalist risings. She is part of a secret organization called the Sealed Knot. And people seem to be really trusting her. But you find that Cromwell's most memorable spy master, John Thurlow, tries to catch her because Anthony Hinton, the apothecary, has betrayed her. 
and on a Sunday morning he finds her in Wiltshire. They bring her back to London in a coach. They make her stand in front of a court for hours and hours without anyone talking to her. Then throw her in Lambeth Prison, which Anthony Hinton could not stand for more than two weeks, which is an all-male prison, and then weeks later she is dead. And we don't know what happened to her. We only know that her friends came and took her out of that prison and buried her somewhere. But I then found out some quite shocking information that Susan Hyde is the sister of Edward Hyde, the later first Earl of Clarendon. Quite a famous figure in this history of the Civil War. He writes the history of the rebellion. He's one of the first historians of this period, in fact. And he recruited his own sister as a spy. And yet he doesn't mention her anywhere in this history of the rebellion. I first thought, okay, that's probably because I'm looking at a 19th century edition. And as we discussed, editors might leave out women from 19th century editions. So I actually went back to the manuscript of this history of the rebellion to see whether something was left out. And his handwriting is really illegible. So this took me weeks, but it's nowhere in there. He doesn't mention her. It's not that she's sort of written out of history. He never writes her into history. So we have one of the most successful woman spies of this period, because she is quite successful for a long time, dying and being basically the sister of what we would now see as the prime minister. And we're not knowing about her. That's just incredible. It is extraordinary. And as you say, it's because he hadn't written the story in precisely because of what she was doing, because she was involved in espionage, one presumes. Yes, it's guesswork why he hasn't mentioned her. He, for instance, mentions Lady Carlyle and Lady Daubigny, and he turns them into martyrs, but not his own sister. So that's interesting, because spying, of course, being a spy, you have to lie, you have to cheat. So it also damages your reputation. But he could also have been ashamed that he might have felt guilt that he wasn't able in the end to protect his own sister. You mentioned Lucy Percy later, Lady Carlyle. Tell us a little bit about her. Yes, we all know her because she is my Lady de Winter in The Three Musketeers. So Alexander Dumas has fictionalised her. But his story, The Three Musketeers, is based on two 17th century diaries. So these are stories that partially really happened. And she is so much more interesting than My Lady de Winter. That's what is astonishing about it. She is married to a man twice her age, James Hay, 1st Earl of Carlisle, who is known in this period, or the Queen of Bohemia refers to him as my ugly camel's face. <laughs> so he's probably not the most attractive of men. But she becomes the mistress of George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. And quite openly, it seems that her husband has agreed to this arrangement as well. He agrees to go on an ambassadorial mission so Buckingham will have more time with his wife. 
and Buckingham puts her into the Queen's household to spy for him. That's how her spying activities begin. But during the Civil War, and of course Buckingham by that time is long dead, she becomes a widow quite early on, and she has no children. I think she's barren. There are kind of references to her not being able to have children. And this, strangely enough, allows her a great amount of freedom. As a widow, no longer being attached to a man, yet having all these royal connections. She is fascinating because we don't know whether she supported king or parliament in the end. She seemed to have spied for both sides, and both sides seem to believe that she really belonged to them. So she's a double agent? She is a double agent, it seems. But this is just a suspicion that she was a royalist, but other people will say definitely not, she was a parliamentarian. And she writes in cipher, she ends up in the tower, but just continues her spying activities. Just she managed to smuggle letters out of the tower and just continue her work. She is placed on the house arrest. This doesn't stop her either. So she's an extraordinary woman and she is referred to as the killing beauty of the world. So she must have been extremely attractive. And my partner wrote a novel, which is called Killing Beauties, based on that kind of saying that Lady Carla was the killing beauty of the world. And he turned Susan Hyde, who disappears from the archives, in a kind of this woman who really continues then to have several different lives. Because the thing is, as an historian, you cannot fill the gaps. But as a novelist, you can, of course. So we had great fun turning these stories into fictional stories as well. Yes, lucky, lucky novelists. You mentioned that Lady Carlyle was single for much of this time. Were female intelligences mostly widowed or separated or single in some way? It seems to be the case. I've only found one married couple working together. And I think that's because men were held legally responsible for their women. So whereas you have the kind of great advantage if you are single or a woman, when you are being caught and your male colleagues would be executed, but you as a woman would be set free, then you can sort of walk out of that prison in a couple of weeks' time. If you are married, your husband might still be held responsible. So that becomes a much more dangerous game for your family. So I think that's why we have so many widows or single women. And Jane Warwood couldn't care what would happen to her husband because he was a brute anyway. So with her, it's it's different. And one of the most famous female spies is Elizabeth Murray. Yes. Tell us the story of Murray. Yeah, I concentrated on two kinds of women in the book Invisible Agents. One, the women we did not know anything about, like Susan Hyde, but also the women, because I thought I need to start somewhere. I need to understand these women spies, whom I thought we would definitely be sure about would be active women spies. And Elizabeth Murray is one of them. And she was known as the Grand Dame of the Sealed Knot. But when I was researching her, she turned out to have done nothing for the sealed knot, but was active much later when the sealed knot, this one organization, turns into a rival secret organization called the Great Trust. And there she becomes active as a woman spy. And she was confused with 
a woman, a first biographer, thought this to be a code name, Catherine Gray. But Catherine Gray turns out to be not to be a code name, but a real woman. So some of the agency ascribed to Elizabeth Murray in the first period should go to Catherine Gray, invented invisible ink recipes that were really dangerous. She is the woman who worked with kind of poisonous invisible ink. And whereas Elizabeth Murray and her sisters are more on the kind of periphery at this time. So looking at one woman sort of opened up another world and her activities were not at all as we sort of expected they would be. So even where we think we know what's going on, actually you're showing that there are these levels of complexity and these multiple peoples involved. And actually quite often the person we think is at the heart of it isn't. It's an extraordinary work of detection that you've done. Well, thank you. It was certainly a lot of fun to do as well. Yeah, I just hope that someone turns this into some kind of television series, obviously, because these stories are so rich and indeed so complex. It's even hard to hold them all in your head. <laughs> yes. Now, there's one technique that you mentioned that actually reminds me of one of the naughtiest things I ever did at school, which is, and I apologise to my history teacher, Mr Lane, to whom I'm probably telling this for the first time, in that I once gave in an essay where I only submitted one page and then I stopped. I finished it in the middle of a sentence and I hadn't handed in the second page. I feel ashamed even thinking about it. Anyway, so some of the letters that you have talked about use that technique as well or are seeming to start as if on a second sheet. Explain how that works. Yes, this is a technique that Lady Carlisle uses quite often. You don't need to address the person and you're starting in media res as if pretending to talk about something else. So it's a way of disguising political speech as domestic speech. She also opens letters as if they are love letters, yet they are addressed to her brother-in-law, whom she quite hates at the time. So again, this kind of indication that something else might be going on. They start in media res, read as love letters, and an interceptor might be quickly bored of it and then throws it away, whereas the rest of the letter might be discussing something political. It does seem to me like this is worthy of television interest because here we've got some great female characters leading roles and you're retrieving them from the archive and from this sort of weight of history that has been turned towards looking at men's stories. When I introduced you, I said that women were at the very heart of Britain's political relations in the mid-17th century. Do you think that's fair? I think so. They were certainly much more active than we thought for a very long time. I think we still need to rewrite history. I think also the next step would be not only to look at them separately, but really to integrate the narrative that we had and with the narratives of these women, we need to rewrite and merge them as they clearly weren't operating as women only. They were working in these networks. And so that also means that the stories that talk about male networks only cannot be correct. So we need to sort of look at history in a different way. Of course, they operated under restrictions and of course, they were less active than the men or in a very different way. So we still need to be aware that, of course, they weren't these kind of great proto-feminists that could sort of operate as women could nowadays do. 
but I think we still need to look at them differently and they are much more powerful than we thought. Thank you so much for this wonderful insight into women in espionage. And also for those who are interested, Nadine has been involved with a group making videos. If you want to learn how to lock your letters or use invisible ink, just pop onto YouTube and put in letter locking videos and go down the rabbit hole of the unbelievable number of techniques that you can try or go to letterlocking.org but of course only after you have subscribed to not just the Tudors from History Hit to which you have been listening thank you Dr Nadine Ackerman this has been really wonderful it's my pleasure so great talking to you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.